This is John Defile at John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London. Today I'm pleased to have with me upstairs at the shop after hours Anne Rowe, the author of several biographies over the last three decades. She has also been writing obituaries for The Economist for over 20 years. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Johnny. Her new book is Lifescapes, a biographer's search for the soul. Now, when Anne Rowe goes explicitly in quest of the soul, I think there's good reason for taking notice. I'll come back to that, but first, Anne, would you tell us, please, what your new book is about in your words rather than mine? <laughs> yes, it's about the process of writing obituaries and how, when I'm presented each week with a subject, I have to set about trying to catch the essence of him or her. It's not a simple procedure. I became aware very quickly that it's not a matter of just running through the life. Birth, death, examination results, marriage, divorces, etc., etc. You compile all these things up and you still feel that the essential essence of the person has escaped you somehow. So where does this essence lie? And I think I began to find it, or hoped I could, in the littlest details about people. Things such as how they walked, how they spoke, words they liked, things they liked eating, the tiniest details of their lives. And then you could perhaps touch these in on the canvas and make the person come alive that way. If you notice how somebody walks, for example, it may tell you more about them, or you notice how they button the cardigan or fuss over some particular thing. That may tell you more than what their marks were in history at Eton, or, or that uh -huh. kind of thing. Well, does your writing of obituaries precede the writing of books, then? No, I started writing my books in 19... 90 or so, I think it was. It was a bit late. And I started doing the obituaries in 2003. So there had been a spell of writing biographies before that. And the one that particularly intrigued me and is still my favourite is the one on Pontius Pilate, where I had to more or less build up a character out of thin air. There was so little left. There was nothing in the Roman historians. There was quite a bit in Josephus. There were bits and pieces here and there. There were physical things. And actually I found that it was a physical thing, a coin of his, and a broken dedication stone in a temple to Tiberius that really told me more about Pilate than all the inventions of succeeding centuries. There have been some pretty good inventions from the medieval mystery plays to Bulgakov, so there was a tremendous character strutting about there. But who was the man? I found these little concrete things, just these remnants, told me a great deal. So that was a fascinating discovery. And as I went on going into the present day, I found it was still true of contemporary subjects. And actually it was more true than ever when I came to deal with famous people. I always sigh when I have to write the obituary of someone extremely mm. famous who's been in all the Sunday papers because we, the economists, come out rather later than they do. People are already tired of this person. But I have to find some way to revive them, bring them to everyone's attention. And therefore it is the tiny details that I tend to find fix on. 
I remember when I wrote the obituary of Arthur Miller, for example, that I fixed on his love of carpentry. Suddenly this seemed a very important mm. aspect of him. It seemed to explain how beautifully crafted his plays are, but in a rather concrete way. Um, at, at this point, I, I'm going to come clean about why, as I said before, I think we should take notice when Anne Rowe goes in quest of the soul. Her subject, she mentioned Pontius Pilate, otherwise have been per Perkin Warbeck, Shelley, Orpheus, St Francis. Is that all of them? Yes. yes. As well as a book about the treatment of light in art, Six Facets of Light. When Being Shelley came out, I recall being baffled by why anyone should write a big book on Shelley just after Richard Holmes's superb and detailed biography. What more could she possibly have to say? And then I read Anne's and was utterly transfixed and astonished to find that her approach was totally different to what you usually find in biographies. She presents an account of what it actually felt like to be Shelley, which when you think about it is an extraordinary thing. And in relation to what you were saying about details just now, you used the word revive. Yes. And it seems that if one thinks about what revive means, um, you were doing something. You were doing something like that, uh, with that, in relation to Shelley. The yes, vitality. I suppose that's true. I, I suppose that's true. It was very extraordinary how the Shelley book came to be. In fact, I thought of writing about him, really, because. I read the Ode to the West Wind while I was on holiday. I remember I was sitting simply on the terrace of our B&B reading this and it was as if suddenly I'd been swept up with the wind. It was quite an extraordinary feeling. I, I just can't put it any other way. And I immediately knew I had to write about Shelley and I had to write about him as far as I could from the inside, which simply meant trying to inhabit the poetry and also inhabit the notebooks where the poetry is coming through and is continually revised and revised. Um, something I felt a little bit guilty about later because I realised how I don't want to keep my first drafts of anything. <laughs> and there was I poring over <laughs> Shelley's first draft and finding you know, the uh, inexact word he'd chosen and then the exact one and so, so on and so on. Uh, it was fascinating because I felt he had something to say that was not political in a way, but also was political. It was both spiritual and political. And I think Richard Holmes quite rightly had focused on the political. He had not wanted to go anywhere near spirituality. Shelley, though, doesn't shy away from that. He's quite fine with the realm of the divine and he mentions it. He just hates religion. He was sent down from Oxford for being an atheist, wasn't he? That's right. But atheism in those days was more like agnosticism in ours. He did acknowledge a divine intelligence in things. He couldn't do with God or any of the packaging and baggaging that goes with God. And God is still a very difficult concept. It's one I had to grapple with a lot in the new book, in a sense, because when you're dealing with what life is, you inextricably, inevitably, have to deal with what is the force in the universe that is life. Yes. And I believe it is a universal <laughs> force, but I don't want to call it God because immediately white beards hove into view mm. and all this awful sort of thing, which we've been so conditioned to, I can't believe that we still are, but 
I still am in a sense, I've just got to get rid of it. But the idea of a divine force, I felt was so strong in Shelley, and the sense that we are all divine forces, we can all remake the world, that was his agenda, I think. And Shelley himself would have recognized the use of the term soul as, yes. as, as something. He used soul, yeah. yes. It rhymed very usefully with control. <laughs> 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 he does use soul a good deal. Um, so therefore you cannot leave that out, but quite rightly you've got to leave any sort of religion superstition out of him because he loathed it. So you've got him actually thinking of some other destiny for humankind, which is absolute potential, as he believed, of all men and women to make revolution, to make heaven on earth. Mm. That was what he meant. And there were also sort of sub-revolutions, like political revolutions at home, which they could take part in. But there was also this inner revolution, if you like, which could remake the world. And I, I felt that was his. That was his message. And that was why on the cover I put this figure of, sort of Albion rising, the William Blake, Mm. bringer of light and love and revolution to the world. It's religion without church. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I don't like using the word religion. It's, it, it's so difficult. It's so hard to, to skirt around it and try to find mm. ways of describing this, which of course I am going to impinge on if I'm going to seek mm. the soul. I'm going to be having to seek the source of soul. Well. The source of soul crops up again with Orpheus yes. in a different, and religion, but again in a different, mm. very different context. And there you have this extraordinary revival, or vival, or <laughs> um, however you want to put it, um, where you've got a subject who may anyway be mythical. Um, you've got, there's no archival trace. No, almost whatsoever. certainly mythical. Um, so. What, what are you doing with Orpheus? The, the, um, you say almost certainly mythical. So, is it, is he? Are you presenting him as a composite of other people's projections? Yes, or? which is what I did with Pilot, really, because I enjoyed writing Pilot so very much that I spent quite a long time afterwards trying to find a similar character. It's oh. quite hard to find a character who actually had. A real life and also has projections put on him all through history and even in the present day. Orpheus I think was not real. He is the spirit of poetry. He is poetry. Um, or he is the creative force if you like, man's creative force. As Shelley said, poets and God are the great creators. Poets and God on an equal footing. So that that is what Orpheus represents. And I suppose well, I know that I wanted also to get a physical sense of Orpheus because I think if you don't, you're dealing with an abstraction which is not satisfactory for readers to to deal with. And I took myself to Bulgaria. My husband and I drove around and it was fascinating to feel Orpheus still there. Because in the river or in the mountains? In the mountains, in Thrace. Hmm. Statues of him everywhere, his name everywhere and the little village where he was born and seeing the sort of trees that were there and the places where you imagine he might have wandered and going down into the pit in the earth 
uh, going down all those endless steps which might have been on a way into the underworld. So he was extremely vivid there and I liked to imagine him and I liked to try and put flesh on the bones. Well, you're, you're almost incarnating an idea. Yes. I, I, I suppose, but which you then carry through in your new book as you're, you're looking, you or you appear to be looking, taking the idea of incarnating an idea and saying, mm. "What am I doing here? What? How do I? Yes. What, how do I get inside this person? How I? How do I seize this person? And it is partly in little physical things, if you can find them, um, as I say, physical appearance, way of walking, way of talking." Um, just the the sense of them in that way and the little details of their lives it's partly that it's partly done through them expressing themselves I spend most of my time reading what they've written or looking at their interviews listening mm. to their voice finding words that they particularly like putting the obituary as much as I can in their voice so I try to take myself out of it because after all if you're writing in obituary week after week after week it could always be your voice mm. which is incredibly boring and why, why should anyone want to listen to what I think of somebody the place to write where the economist thinks of somebody is in the leader columns in my obituary I'm presenting the person in their voice I hope and I'm, I'm taking myself into the background if I can and trying to see the world as they saw it and that can occasionally become very difficult, so I find I can't even write the obituary. There have been one or two people I haven't been able to deal with. One was Jimmy Savile. Um, before all the scandal came out about him, I read his autobiography, and I have never read a more creepy book in my life. And I thought I just don't even before want you knew. Even before it had come out. Thank God I didn't try yeah. to. <laughs> But yes, it was creepy and I thought, I, I can't do this. Yeah. And another one, there are people in whose minds I don't want to get, another one was Ian Brady mm. when he died. Mm. Uh, in fact, I preferred to deal with the mother of one of the victims who still went well, up on the moor to look for him. And her story to. is told in, in my new book, yeah. in the chapter called Returning, which is about how people do not accept the death of people close to them. Mm. How there's this sense of continuing. That, that brings us to the book itself. That, and I wanted to ask you about the structure of the book, which um, refers back to some of the things we've mentioned, but it, it, it is presented on the face of it as two parts, out-breath, in-breath. Each of those parts is divided into four possessing, seizing, indwelling, and returning. And they say have the same chapter headings. Mm. Now, up to a point, and um, perhaps we can return to that, I c there are, there are, one can see patterns from I in these sections. I think one refers to objects and props. Yes. One refers to if you like, the, 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 the way in which motion is transmitted. Or yes, and the act of trying to seize the character, the mm. act of 
that we do all the time of judging and summing up people when we see them just mm. glancingly. And how would you characterize your the, the use of your structure in the second half when you come ah, to the in-breath? Yes, there I would characterize it as going deeper than the first half. When you have possessing in the first half, it's possessing objects. Mm -hmm. um, which are ordinary objects with no, with an evocative power for other people perhaps, but objects that are not in themselves important. In the second part, they are objects that acquire a numinous power, because the second part of possessing is really about childhood, and it is about the objects of childhood that become magical. So it becomes, I think, it moves on to a higher stage, mm. it moves on to a more refined catching of something higher in these objects than simply you know, possessing them. It, uh, in, for the listener, the, in the first half, the act of possessing, so to speak, and talks, for example, about an old trainer that she's seen on a roof from a bus, and what that might say about uh, an imagined life, and the way in which we see, uh, fee make we feel about certain, if you like, props that other people have. You talk about your mother's pencil. Yes. We, we all have things in the lives, particularly of those we love, um, where you can't bear to, um, let's say, throw away your grandfather's mm. razor or yes. all sorts of things. But um, also because you have these objects and with them you can actually summon up the person. Mm. So you're already in that sense that there is a, a power in the objects. And then when you move on to the second part, that it, there is the childlike or child child's belief that these objects are magic and can work magic. Mm. So in the, the objects are, if you like, a turnstile to mm. your idea of mm. what somebody's soul it might be. Yes, um, yes. And, but then, then you talk about your childhood in the second half and your own responses and remembered responses mm. to those things and in a sense to let us know how you perceive of your, your own soul. Yes, you're moving towards that. You are, I mean, because our own souls are really the only, or our own consciousness of our own souls, the only way we can really uh, try to discover them. But the idea of seizing, the second part that mm. I call seizing, is really in the first part of the book, the, the act of quickly seizing people or quickly summing up somebody from a bus or from a train. Or I'm very intrigued by the way we immediately make up lives for people that we simply pass in the street. Mm. I do it all the time. But in the second part of the book, it's about poets and what they do. And a lot of this was inspired, I suppose, by a phrase of Shelley's, which I, he took from someone else, uh, which is that poets become what they contemplate. Mm. And they are not merely looking at people, but you're also looking at even a blade of grass and suddenly finding depths in it you never had imagined and suddenly plunging into an object. And Rilke writes about this really well 
when he takes and looks at an object as a poet, suddenly he is inside that object or he is becoming it. Uh, it's, it's quite frightening and it has happened to me and therefore I, I recount when it happens to me. You, you th this is where you're talking about um, Blackthorn, is it? Or the Blackthorn is the last, so section the last section of the first part because the Blackthorn is the sense of returning your note to oh, the, the creator. And that to me right. was what the Blackthorn the was doing. Song. Yeah, the Blackthorn was responding to the creative breath. It was a very strong feeling that there was a creative breath moving across the whole hillside and the Blackthorn was responding to it. The Blackthorn, in Rumi's words, was giving back the note that it has. And that was when I was wondering whether I had any note to give back. Mm. And found out to my horror that I didn't, I was too shy to give back my note. But mm. I did feel that I had one. So these are all, if you like, they're all attempts to get closer to soul, to get closer to the undefinable. Because I know in Seizing, I talk about the sixth sense and those odd feelings we have that of coincidence and things we think we see and are not sure we do or just the instinct that keeps us from doing one thing rather than another it's all fascinating to me it's a, it's a, it's a higher level of understanding and noticing the world you use the phrase brushes with heightened life yes which um, is for me is highly evocative mm -hmm. um, and when you do it, when you describe it, or in, uh, in yourself or with other people, you do it through. You, you mentioned Wordsworth, Tennyson, Heaney, poets often, mm. and you you lay out you you um, poetry of your own. A lot of people perhaps also find it particularly through music. Mm, um, absolutely, this brush brush with heightened life it's that feeling that you get what is it how do you characterize it but yes. I take that um, to be to belong to the same thing in your it does it absolutely belongs to the same thing and I know that I begin the next section after after seizing certainly in the first part with Claudio Abbado, in fact, mm. and yes. his seizing of music and thinking of silence as well as music and finding there was a sound even to silence. It's trying to go beyond the notes almost. I, I did think of music very much and there are quite a few musicians in it, I think. Leon Fleischer is another yeah. one. I'm trying to think of others. Aretha Franklin comes in at the end, but that's yeah. for rather different reasons. You take us, it takes us back to Orpheus again, of course. Yes, it does. Mm, yes, there was, there was a lot of music in Orpheus. I'm utterly devoted to music, but it's, it's not my field as much as writing is. Yeah. So I have to leave it for the words of others really, to describe the effect um, of it. The, well, one of the things that strikes me so forcibly about what you do is it is the exercise of the imagination. Your everything that you write about involves an imaginative leap 
of a different kind, I think, from how biographers normally do things. Or so many biographers. It's so, so many biographers. It's a question of syllogisms, also, almost. If mm. A then B and B then C, therefore yes. A then, then yes. C. You proceed by trusting imaginative insights in a way. Well, I prefer to proceed by themes. That was certainly what I did with Shelley, with the earth, air, fire, and water. I, I always like themes because I want to break up that chronological march. I remember being told very severely by Brenda Maddox, actually, who's a, who was a fine biographer, that I really had to adopt chronology because there was mm. such a thing as cause and effect. And <laughs> I shouldn't simply brush it away. But I used to find following themes so fascinating because they threw up all sorts of other ideas on the way. Mm and allowed you to get deeper into the mind of the subject, or I thought they did. I also never wanted it to feel, at least with poets, that they produced poetry just as part of daily work, like another day at the office. You know, you go in, you write a poem, and then you go and have dinner at the Garrick or something. I thought, heavens, it is not like that, being a poet. It really isn't. You are the slave of poetry if you are a great poet. You are absolutely at its service, uh, and that is your life, and everything else is peripheral, and possibly not your great muse if you have one, but otherwise you you cannot be living an ordinary life. You, you refer, in the context of poets, to, um, I think, Heaney, you say something about uh, Tools and implements. For mm. whom tools and implements yes. lived. They lived. And it, was, it is so clear in his writing, it's wonderful. I'm looking at the evidence of life in, in everything, you know, the life moving among electrons and so on. I found in Heaney, he gives you objects, but they're always moving. Hammers and tools, and they're moving with the force of how they've been used and how they will be used, and the action of the hand in using them. There's the, he finds the exact word all the time for how the axe falls, or how the knife cuts, how the fishing line hisses through the water. There's a sense of agency in these objects. There's a life separate to whatever think is in using the context them. of mm. Shelley. And the uh, Prometheus and the life giving, the tool giving yes. life. That's right. Um, That's right. Yes. Um, you, you, you said, oh, sorry, just coming back to the, the imaginative thing. F again, for listeners, there's a most wonderful entry into this in the preface. Is it the preface or is it the first chapter? You, you talk about the fish. The introduction. The introduction. Um, where you will you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> this was a, a funny story. It was a very hot, slow August, and um, I was sitting in my shed at the bottom of the garden in North London, thinking, "What on earth can I do? Perhaps I can do an obituary of a fish." It was, it was a famous carp that had been caught, I think, more times than any other fish in recorded annals, at any rate, called Benson, that lived in a lake in Peterborough. And I just decided to try to become the fish. It was a lovely way to spend 
a summer Sunday languishing in the mud at the bottom of this lake and imagining the bait coming down through the water. I had a wonderful time with it. I would not mind finding other animals to try and get into the minds of. I tried to get into the mind of a Japanese station cat once, but I did love Benson because it was in another element. You were in the element of water. And she, apparently it was a she, was a rather beautiful fish. And I loved the way she would come up and be caught and just nestle for a while, basking in her beauty in the arms of these various lads who'd managed to land her. And then they would put her back again. And I had a picture with the obituary of, of one of them who had a woolly hat and looked very young and, and rather shy and this enormous fish. And I love that picture. Often the picture is, is what you need to tell the story. And I did wonder for a while whether I should put pictures in, in the book and then decided, no, I think they simply have to live by words in the book quite important to uh, not to make it a collection of obituaries because in fact the obituaries are sort of treated as paraphrase or with extracts or so and they're not given complete. It's it's much more than a collection of obituaries as, as I think I said at the mm. beginning um, or before we started I, I, my feeling about the book is not, although the obituaries come into it, is not that it's a collection of obituaries. It seems to me something much more than that. It seem, I mean, it, it seems to be an extraordinarily ambitious book. Again, you s say, I think of my work as catching souls. What, it, yes. I mean, that's uh, quite I a know. thing to say. I know, and so it is. And gradually that wanting to catch souls leads on to considering what life is. Yeah. I know when I was writing it, um, people would often say, what are you writing about? And I, and I used to say almost as a joke, what is life? Like <laughs> Shelley's question. Mm. Uh, and But it's true, I do wonder what life is. The scientists have not told us yet. I feel increasingly that life is a universal consciousness which is driving through the world, which is in us, which is in every, everything, every facet of creation, every electron and atom. It is simply that. And certainly if you go to the Hindu Vedas, you find that image very strongly of life inhabiting all things and working through them. It's in the New Testament too, if you look for it. It, it is in almost every place. but. Uh, since I think Max Planck's time, uh, it hasn't enjoyed a great deal of uh, support in science. I think actually with the, with the growth of quantum theory, it's becoming a little more acceptable to say that. Well, you get plenty of philosophers and slightly mysteriously logicians who are hmm. um, highly religious. I think with Gertrude Anscombe, um, sorry, not Elizabeth Hanscom. Mm. Um, yes. But um, um, you say, uh, I happen to believe in the soul as a concept. And it makes me think, again, uh, what sort of, you've spoken of, of believing in some sort of life force which perhaps is an answer to what I was going to say, what sort of uh, 
reality do, does it have? You're not proposing that it has some objective reality. You're proposing perhaps that it has some felt reality. That we, um, it's something that we all feel in others. But if we feel it, then does it not possibly have an objective reality? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. I would say, I would say it does, but I can't be categorical about these things. I would know myself I feel that to be true. But... Uh, do you think it's to do, to do with our perceptions? I mean, uh, do, do you think that it's enough to say of a soul that it of soul that it is a way of speaking about something we perceive in the world or a way of accounting for something we feel i think we do all feel intensely that there is a something in us which we hope will survive somehow which we feel is eternal, which we can hardly believe will just disappear, as we know our bodies disappear, which seems also to operate independently of brain at times. <laughs> and you say that it, you, you, you invoke poetry and music and so forth. Mm. Um, very often, I think where, where it comes out is in the broadest sense through art but is it yes I also think it comes out in a sense of common humanity yeah. I think there is a sense in which we do feel all linked together and bound in common experiences is it more uh, than an aesthetic sense well, I think it's fundamental. Aesthetic sounds rather superficial to me. Does it? Yes. Mm. I think of it as an absolutely fundamental feeling of universal oneness. Mm. Because I do think in the process of writing these obituaries over 20 years, mm. the way I have felt sympathy with and, and oneness with all my candidates Mm. even if it's only been for two or three days, has quite influenced me, the way I have been able to put myself in their shoes. And I, I don't want to vaunt myself in this. It's just that I have, I have heard from people who have known them or people close to them that they were rather surprised that I managed to, to know them to that degree. And mm. I thought, well, how was it that, that I did? What was this? act of immersion, mm. if you like. Mm. Mm. And so that has made me think, what, what is this force? Because it is a force that is also linking me, that also seems to be moving beyond me, that also seems to be rather separate from time and separate from mm. space. It's like an instant force. So well, the qualities of it. Them, yes, it? yes. And so that has made me interested. And I've, I've uh, plundered the books on physics of Carlo Ravelli. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and every so often I think, well, yes, that's exactly what's happening in a way. It is a sense of being past, present and future, yeah. of becoming one and a sense of a sense of everything being one thing. But it is such a, 
a mind-blowing idea that I find I can only tiptoe up to it and t touch it with a finger mm. and then, mm. then retreat again and think, well, I, I believe this is what I believe, but it, it, is, it is such a gigantic thing to believe that we just have to go on with believing that everything is solid and separate. Yes. It's well, separateness that I really find I'm beginning to resist. Well, that makes me majorly think of Buddhist ideas of coming back after in another. Yes. Um, yes. Although I have absolutely habit. no evidence myself that I have been reincarnated, I I'm not against the yeah, idea. Yeah. Um, there's a. How 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 does you your quest, so to speak? sit do with the sort of enlightenment idea of um, the triumph of reason and the perfectibility of man or woman I mean do you think that that is something that nobody believes in now I want to say to you I don't think they believe in the perfectibility of quite hard to I agree <laughs> but it, when you look around you it is yes and you feel my goodness Things have not improved since the ancient Greeks, in fact, gone backwards in some ways. It is not the perfectibility of man and woman as we know them. I, I think I do believe, though, that we can move into higher states of being. I do think that's possible after death, that we can enter higher states. So progress, but yes, not, progress, a, not but as conceived by the No, I mean the pro... I think maybe that sort of progress would be what James Lovelock imagined, which was that oh. we'd be almost born with chips in us and, and um, you know, Google. You talk about Lovelock. Tell us. Yes. Uh, um, it, it was um, Weinberg. But Lo Lovelock, what, tell us what you made make of Lovelock. Oh, I was very sympathetic to him indeed. I, I was fascinated to learn that he was a Quaker. And I was also fascinated to learn that... Um, he believed in a still small voice that gave him his best ideas. As I, the earth as a living organism and, and a sort of self-sustaining entity, I think is a very powerful mm. argument. Mm. I don't see why it shouldn't be true. I also think there are probably other, other earths. Mm. I, I, was, I was very sympathetic to him. I could see why he found it hard to sell that idea. And I can also always see why there's a sort of large, flaky, new age fringe to all these alternative mm. scientific ideas that start. I think Rupert Sheldrake, for example, talks a great deal of sense about the, the capacities of plants um, to remember and help each other and that kind of thing. But again, you know, the struggle to get these ideas accepted by science. There's a wonderful sense of if not validation of his ideas, but th th uh, further progress of his ideas, funnily enough, even through his son, through Rupert. I agree um, with that marvellous book about the, the fungi. Russian, but it, the, also the, the ideas that you increasingly see about trees. Yes, mm -hmm. and how they give each other space mm. and all this sort of thing. Uh, yes, I, I find this all extremely thought-provoking. And I suppose when I conceived this book, I thought, there's a lot bubbling away now in science. Mm. 
and maybe I can just put the ideas I've had from a completely different place, which is the writing of obituaries. Maybe that feeds into the argument in mm. some way. Possibly there's a use in it, or possibly people will just find it enjoyable. I, I hope so. Well, I find, I think we, it's a good place to bring it to a close. That I think the book is absolutely fascinating. It has a lot of extremely wonderful writing in it, um, bringing you ideas. It's full of ideas. It, it's an images, above all images, um, which Anne uses to vivify her people, subjects, her subjects. Um, so the book is available and it will be 1899. Do give us a call or send us an email and we'd love to keep one or send one to you. Meanwhile, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Johnny. I've much enjoyed it. Along with everything that was lost and won, 